When God waits, from John chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. In our series in John, we come to another amazing chapter in the life of Jesus. It is, of course, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. This will serve as another sign that points to Jesus as the Son of God and leads to the great, to another great I am declaration, this time as the resurrection and the life. Remember that, let's just recall a little bit, that the multiplication of the, the loaves and the bread shows him as the bread of life. His giving sight to the man born blind shows him as the light of the world. And now Jesus raising to life a man who has been dead for four days is a foretaste of his own coming out of the grave, his own raising from the grave in three days. So all of this is is leading to, it's building up the momentum to the glorious resurrection of our Lord. But there is so much more in the lead up to this story that we, that we are going to unpack this morning. It is one of the, the clearest statements in scripture of both the humanity and the deity of Jesus. Truly man and truly God. Two natures in one person. That is the, the, the great significance of the Christmas celebration. Let's recall that in, in the previous chapter, in chapter, chapter 10, the Jews demanded that if Jesus is indeed the Christ, that he just tell them plainly. Of course, he had already told them many times, but they were trying to excuse their lack of belief, their unbelief, by blaming their lack of faith in Jesus. They just couldn't believe what he was saying. And Jesus answered that even if they did not believe his words, they should at least believe his works or his signs, which proved that he was indeed the one who was sent by God, the good shepherd, that is chapter 10. And so as we move to chapter 11, we have the record of the the final, the final work or sign that Jesus gives and the final rejection of Jesus by the Jewish leaders as the Christ. The Sanhedrin will pass sentence, a death sentence, on Jesus. Again, another recap. We've traveled quite a while in the Gospel of John. You might have noticed that John's Gospel is built around three great miracles of the Lord. The first in chapter 5 is the healing of the paralytic, the pool of Bethesda. In chapter 9, it is the opening of the eyes of the man born blind. And now the raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11 is another amazing story. Great miracles, wonderful signs of the deity of Christ 
And apart from his own resurrection, this is without a doubt the greatest of the Lord's miracles. It was done in public. It wasn't done just in a, in, in a small room like the raising of Jairus' daughter. Everybody was there. Everybody could see it. It was on full display. There was no instructions. Don't go and tell anybody about this. Jesus is out there declaring himself who he truly is. Now, with each of these miracles, two important things happen. Firstly, each sign that takes place, as each sign takes place, many come to believe in Jesus. But at the same time, with each of these signs, the opposition against Jesus grows harsher and more belligerent. Unlike our times, the times in which we live, which is characterised by apathy and indifference, when the gospel strikes, you should get actually two reactions. You believe or you actually become quite angry and upset about it. That's the actual reaction that one would expect of the implications of the gospel. There's no in-between. You cannot simply sit on the fence and ho-hum, here we go again. I've heard it all before. People are forced to make a critical decision because eternity is at stake. You either love him or hate him. You cannot wallow in indifference. We're going to look at three problems in our passage. First of all, the problem of disease from verses 1 to 3. The problem of disease. Now, a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. The same Mary whose brother Lazarus lay ill was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. Bethany at the time was a small village outside of Jerusalem and it is located on the opposite side of the Mount of Olives. Nowadays it's just simply a suburb in, in, in Jerusalem. And the name Lazarus is derived from Eliezer, which means God help him. And this is all we know about Lazarus. Nothing that he said or what he wrote has been, has been recorded And Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, tell us a little bit more about his sisters. This is where Martha was preparing the meal in the kitchen, (coughs) busy, busy, while Mary chose the better part by spending as much time as possible doing what? Listening to Jesus. John tells us that this is the same Mary who anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped them with her hair. Now that incident does not take place until some time later in the next chapter. But John brings it in here because he wants us 
to know which of the various Marys he is talking about. There's quite a few Marys. Just about as many as, I think, every second girl born Italian, I think, is called Mary or something like that. Uh, or it's in the middle of the name somewhere. Everybody wants, every lady wants to be called Mary, or they used to be anyway. Well, there's quite a few Marys in the Gospel. And we've got to keep track of which one he's talking about. So he tells us. There is, of course, the, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, Mary Magdalene, and now Mary, the sister of Martha. But you get a sense that this whole scene is bathed in, in love. And, I, I, you know, it, it sounds you know, quite gushy and, and all of that, in warm and fuzzy, but it's not like that at all. It was actually these people loved each other. Martha loved Jesus. Mary loved Jesus. Lazarus loved Jesus. Jesus loved them. They loved each other. It is possible to love without any, in today's language, without any sexual connotations whatsoever, which we simply cannot understand. How is it that these people all loved each other? That's how sick a world we live in, isn't it? There was mutual, affectionate love, deep love. And this was, why was it so? Because this was a most, this was a haven for Jesus and his disciples in his, in his earthly lifetime. Where we're going to go, where we're going to stay, they would go to the home of Martha and, and Mary and Lazarus. They would hang out. This is a place that he felt welcome. He didn't have to constantly be looking over his shoulder. This is a place where he could rest. It was a beautiful home. And Jesus receives word that his friend Lazarus is sick. No, it wasn't just your normal head cold or something like this. This is really sick. Otherwise, they wouldn't have told Jesus about it. Just a reminder, again, that God's children are not exempt from trials, from sickness and even death. And sickness does not necessarily mean that God is upset with you. Mary and Martha are so concerned about their brother that they send word to Jesus and this says a lot about the way that they viewed the Lord. They do not tell Jesus, they do not ask him to come only to let him know that the one you love is ill. They do not base their plea on the brother's love for Jesus, on Lazarus' love for Jesus, no, or on, even on their love for the Lord. They base their information or their request on the Lord's love for their brother. That's very important. They knew he had compassion. They knew that he cared for the family. 
So somewhere along the lines that would assume that Jesus, by knowing that he was ill, that he was going to come anyway without them even asking. Not only that, not only his compassion, not only his love, but also his power. It's not as if somebody lets us know and says, so-and-so is, is not well or somebody is in need. And the response is, well, what do you want me to do about it? That's not the response. They knew that Jesus was powerful enough. They would have seen Jesus perform many miracles. His reputation was known everywhere. Now they look to him. They knew that not only is he able, he is powerful, not only is he loving, he can do it, he cares, he knows. And he will do something about it, but not just yet. Remember that Jesus had left Jerusalem at the end of the last chapter. He had left Jerusalem and gone to the, to the wilderness region of the Jordan River. It's about a two-day journey from the city towards the, the wilderness area, down towards the Jordan. And that was where John the Baptist was, was baptizing and where he began his ministry. And, and today, that area there, there's not too many trees. It's, it's, it's a little bit similar to the Australian outback. You have a few bushes here and there, and, and there's, there's a river through the middle. It's actually the, it, today, it's actually the border crossing between Israel and, and Jordan. So if you ever go there, you will, you will, you will know what, a, what it's like. And that's actually the area, two days' journey from Jerusalem by that's by foot. So it took the messengers, if, when they left from Bethany, it would have taken them two days to get to Jesus was. And then for Jesus to come back was another two days. So by the time everything was, was done, it would have been four days that Lazarus had been dead. Which leads us to the next point, the other problem. The problem of delays, verses 4 to 10. When he heard this, Jesus said, This illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed there He stayed where he was for two more days. Usually, when we need help with regards to a serious health issue, help is needed straight away. We want it done. We want the ambulance. We want the help. We want the doctors. Can you fit us in? straight away. There's no time to waste. When it comes to serious health issues, if it's our children, we will move heaven and earth to get some type of treatment for them. Jesus loved them deeply 
and yet allowed them to suffer a great deal in his decision, in his love, he allowed them to suffer delaying his stay where he was. At first glance, for us as human beings, it makes no sense. And we know that this is the way that he sometimes deals with us, isn't it? We call out to him for help and he chooses to wait. He comes in his own time, in his own way, in his own and for his own purposes. And what is the ultimate goal of the event? What is it? The glory of the Father, the glory of the Son. That is ultimately what is at stake here. What brings more glory to God? The healing of a sick man or the raising of a dead man? But his friend is the one who is the, the one who, who is suffering, who is dying, and the sisters are the ones who have to care for him. And after staying two more days, he then gets up and says to his disciples, okay, let's go. And by this time it appears that the disciples aren't too concerned about Lazarus. They're starting to think about their own security and safety. They remind Jesus that the last time they were there, they were seeking to stone him. So why again are we going there? What's the reason? What's the point? Yesterday I read uh, that there was a a great white shark in Maroubra Beach. There was a sighting, great white shark, Maroubra Beach. And uh, I don't know if you've, if you've ever been at a beach when there was a shark sighting. <laughs> Everybody, everybody's ordered off the water onto the safety of the beach. Water bad, beach good. Jesus is calling them to leave the security and safety of the Jordan area, the relative security and safety of the Jordan area and go back to Judea. For the disciples, Jordan wilderness good, Jerusalem bad. Why on earth would you go back into the shark's territory? Let me ask you, if Jesus, would says, if Jesus says to you, let's go for a swim right where that great white shark is and maybe even take a selfie next to the great white shark, how many would go to have a swim with Jesus and take the cameras with them? <laughs> oh, George will go. <laughs> Barbara will go. <laughs> if it's Jesus next to you, 
And it's sort of similar to the episode with Peter in the boat. Come out. Let's have a walk. Isn't it? And Jesus uses an illustration to teach truth. The Jewish day has 12 hours. If you walk in the day, you will see the obstacles and not stumble. Walking at night is a little bit more troublesome because you might trip into something, hurt yourself. What is the meaning? The time allotted to fulfill Jesus' earthly ministry is fixed. It's not going to change. His plans will not be thwarted. There's an allotted time for everything. Just as there are 12 hours in a day, it cannot be, be lengthened. It cannot be lengthened by, by the authorities, by the disciples, by anybody else. It, it, it won't be lengthened, it won't be shortened. It is what it is, what God has decreed. That time is not in their hands. It's not up to them. And just to be clear, the length of my ministry, the length of my time here, the hour of my departure, Jesus is saying to them, is not in it's not in anybody else's hands but the Father's. The Father's hands. And just to be clear as well, we know that Jesus could have simply spoken a word where he was in the Jordan area. Message comes, by the way, Jesus, Lazarus, your buddy is ill. And he could have just said, okay, go, he's well. Just like, yep, he's well. Remember, he did that before. It's not impossible for him. He could have done it. But he didn't. He didn't do that. More than that, he remained where he was. Why didn't he heal Lazarus? Because he actually wanted Lazarus, his friend, whom he loved, to die. To die. Meanwhile, not only that, not only that, he allowed Mary and Martha to go through the whole process of grief to watch their brother waste and die, to wash his body, to prepare it for burial, to lay it in a tomb, they were forced to feel the pain, the heartbreak, the sorrow, the doubt. Forced into this impossible situation. You've been there. Why does he do that? You bring your problem, your problem to the Lord and what you receive in return is delay, the silence. You call on him, you expect an answer, an answer to your prayers and, and, and to meet your need. You, you might even be praying in tears, intensely. And all you get in return in silence is, is silence. In fact, sometimes even the, the problems 
just get worse. What do you do when that happens? What you do is you trust. Even when you don't know what's happening, why it's happening, you cannot figure it out, what he's doing, why he's doing it, you continue to trust. The Lord, you see, knows the outcome, the ultimate outcome of the crisis before the crisis even started. This is what, when the Bible says, waiting, the psalmist says, wait upon the Lord, waiting on the Lord, that's what it means to continue to trust Him, even when you cannot understand. You trust. This is why he tells us later on in the, chap- in, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 14, he's going to tell us, let not your heart be troubled. Be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. The problem of, of waiting. And then we get to the last one that we have for this morning, the last problem, the problem of misunderstanding, verses 11 to 16. And after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. Another opportunity Another time when they misunderstand what Jesus is saying. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I wasn't there. Jeez, Jesus. That's a bit insensitive, isn't it? Why? That you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. When Jesus tells them that Lazarus has fallen asleep, they obviously don't understand on top of the fact that they are, you know, on top of the fact that they are going to be returning into enemy territory, they suggest if he's simply asleep and he's obviously going to get better, what's the point of us of going? They struggle to understand his words. They struggle to understand his actions, what he's saying to them. And these are the hard moments when God does things that you and I don't understand. Or even worse, we misunderstand. We think we got it worked out, but no. They buffle us. And... In the misunderstanding, we get discouraged. We have to understand just how little, how little we actually know and understand. It also reveals to us some wonderful things about the way that God thinks and acts. Job put it this way, after battling for some 40 chapters with his doubts, and all the suffering and all these philosophical questions about the way that God does things, one thing after another after another. And God appears to Job and finally 
he gets to that point where he's, there's an epiphany, there's a revelation where he un- starts to declare, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Why? Why does he say that? Because God had been telling them, telling Job, Job, you don't know what you're talking about. His words here reveal, Jesus' words here reveal that when he left Judea just at the end of the last chapter, you would sort of get the idea that the reason he left is because he was running away from trouble, that he was going into, into safety because of fear of, of his enemies. But no, like a conductor, he's orchestrating the whole process. It's, it's, it's marvellous. He's totally under control. And this is going to be an awesome lesson to his disciples and an awesome lesson to us as well. Guys, it's important for you that we now go to... So that Lazarus is dead, so we're going to go now because you're going to see something amazing. And that's why we're going. He waits at times to give our faith a shape, to mould it, to give it form, to give it a, a confirmation that it so desperately needs at times. He gives us snippets of, of light even in the midst of some of the darkness that we go through and says, keep going. The Lord was able to see what the sisters and the disciples could not see. He was able to see beyond the pain, beyond the crisis, he could see the moment of glory and he would see the glory that God would receive through the crisis. God knows what is on the other side of pain. And Jesus is glad he wasn't there because why does he say that? I was glad I wasn't there. Well, Jesus, you're off the pastoral care committee now because you just, uh, you don't care anymore. What do you mean you're glad? Why? Because if Jesus had been there, Lazarus would not have died. No one dies in the presence of Jesus, right? It just doesn't happen. They get better. Wherever he walked, it's like, you know, the the flowers bloom and and the grass is greener. There's there's life, there's joy, wherever he walks. So Jesus, don't come here. We don't need any joy. We just want to be sad and miserable, thank you, and depressed. We don't want to sing any happy songs. Let us just sing the sad songs, please. No, Lazarus wouldn't have died if Jesus was there. So that's why he says, I'm glad I wasn't there. There is actually no record of death in the presence of Jesus. 
the death of Lazarus is going to cause so much more than, the, than what is happening with, in front of the people, all the witnesses, because the disciples are now going to, their faith will get to grow through this process. This is, this is important for the disciples, especially for them, because it won't be too long until these same disciples are going to see their rabbi, their master, their teacher, their Lord, hanging on a cross. And, and they won't understand it all at the time, but there will come a time when they will understand that he has the power over life and death. He's now bringing them to a show and tell. This is what is going to happen. Lazarus isn't going to be in the tomb. Jesus was going to be in the tomb. This is a precursor to the wonderful event of the resurrection. Their faith growing. Their faith being nourished. We do so many things to avoid death, don't we? It's uh, For many, death is a final farewell, a darkness, a silence, leaving us lonely and bereft to wander our way alone, a separation. The disciples had a view of Lazarus. Well, he's dead, he's gone. But for Jesus... For Jesus, death is merely a form of sleep. For the believer, for the believer, there is nothing final or tragic about death. It is an introduction to, to a greater experience than, than ever to the life that is to come. And, and this is why even in the New and Old Testament they use the word for sleep as a, as a metaphor for death. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.14 For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. That's a wonderful promise, isn't it? For the believer, we are simply asleep. Peter Marshall, who was a chaplain to the US Senate for for many years, he told the story of a 12-year-old boy who who knew he was dying, 12 years of age. And the boy asked his father, what is it like to die? And his father said to him, son, do you remember when, when you were little how used to come and sit on my lap in the big chair in the living room. I would tell you a story, read you a book, sing you a song, and you would go to sleep. And you would go to sleep in my arms. And then when you woke up, you were in your own bed. That is exactly the way that death is. That is exactly when the promise when Jesus said, you will not see death. 
Our lesson this morning ends with a statement from Thomas. And this statement has bewildered quite a few people. Um, You know, when he says, let us go and die with him. Was it a declaration of defiant bravery like like Peter's? I'm going to die with you, Lord, no matter what happens. Was it like that? Or was it a sarcastic remark? Oh, well, let's go back and, and get killed. There's nothing else to live for, is there? Was it like that? And some writers say, well, that, that was Thomas's remark. Or was it more a, a Jewish saying that uh, let us go and mourn at the death of our brother Lazarus? It could be any of these. Because that's exactly what death sometimes does to us. We, we, we don't understand. It's a part of a misunderstanding. Now, evidently, John tells us here, evidently, that Thomas was one of the twin boys. Twins means that there are two. Just to clarify that. And that there is another brother somewhere. But the interesting thing is that we never hear about the twin. He never appears in Scripture. And so there is a question. Where is the other, the other brother? And uh, a, a commentator said this, and I think it's quite a lot of wisdom in these words. A commentator said, look in the mirror. There is where you might find him. So he's saying, we're actually Thomas's twin brothers. Much of the experiences that Thomas went through, whether it's bravery or doubt, confusion, unbelief, you look at Thomas and you're looking at yourself. And it's all part of the, this challenge of being Jesus' disciple, isn't it? What he calls us to do is to trust him, to wait, to follow the Master because he's leading us through every stage in life. Yes, it's hard to wait. It's hard to wait upon the Lord. But you know what? It's what we're called to do. Because this lifetime is but a smidgen, not even a speck in eternity. But we get to live it for the Lord. Amen.